Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're in a series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. If you're new with us, we're, we're, we're really defining what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And um, that word is, is probably familiar for people who have been in the church or haven't been in the church. Um, and the word of disciple means apprentice. And we've defined apprenticeship to Jesus as three goals in life. One, we want to learn how to be with him, to become like him, and to do the things that Jesus did. And so this is the invitation for everyone. And, and so we just finished a mini-series on how do we become more like Jesus. And we talked about spiritual formation as this process of transformation um, that takes a long period of time. This morning, I'm going to introduce a new practice that I want to invite everyone to begin to assimilate into their lives as followers of Jesus. This will be under the category of how do we learn to be with Jesus? Um, and, and the premise we're working with is this, that if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And I think for many of us, the way we've been taught to follow Jesus has kind of excluded the life of Jesus. Even if you look at the creeds, which we believe in here, they're, they mostly deal, deal with Jesus' birth and then his death and resurrection. They don't really talk about anything to do with his life. Yet the gospel spend an awful lot of time describing his life and what he did as a rabbi, as a messiah, as the son of God. And one of the aha moments for me last year was this revelation that actually we can't just pray our, pray our way into Christ-likeness or think our way into Christ-likeness. Um, the, the process of becoming more like Jesus um, includes accepting and embracing some of the lifestyle practices of Jesus. So this is what we're, we're going after today. And um, so I'm going to introduce a new one this morning. But I was reading this book. Actually, I was going to just, I don't even have it written. It's so fresh. I was reading it in my, this morning. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I think somebody gave, Nathaniel, did you give this? Yeah, Nathaniel, did you just leave it on my desk? Yeah, you left it on my desk or something. And I, I just found it. I started reading it. And I'm, I'm halfway through it. And I got to this section it's so funny. It was just a spontaneous moment. Highly recommend this book because I couldn't put it down. I love history. And what I, like, I came back to faith um, uh, in, when I was 18 years old, having studied other religions and really rejected the faith for a couple years. Um, I came back to faith because of history. And, and the, the reality is Christianity is the most significant movement in human history. Um, and, and the way the scriptures were formed make it the most authentic ancient text we have, like the New Testament and the Old Testament combined, are an anomaly to any experts in textual criticism. And if you're interested in any of the apologetics, go to Alpha. Okay, Alpha does a great job talking about this stuff. But what I love is the undeniable power of the early church movement. 100, 100 AD, there were 20,000 Christians. By 350 AD, there were 20 million Christians in the Roman Empire with persecution, no formal training, no buildings, 
Um, no uh, like uh, uh, hierarchical structure, no religious establishment. There was no Bible written that they could read. There was no website or Twitter or Instagram or the Facebook Live. Um, but I read this, <laughs> I read this section, and, and it speaks to practices. So just stay with me for a second. Um, and I don't know if this will go into as much as I hope it does, but um, you're the first shot. So I, uh, this is the author. He's saying, I will contend that the Christian, Christian's practice was formed patiently, unhurriedly, through careful catechism, which was a discipleship formation in the early church, as well as through the community's reflexive behavior, and that it was renewed in their regular worship of Christian assemblies. And he says this, um, um, by the late second century, I thought this was fascinating, Many Christian communities had decided that outsiders, non-Christians, could not be admitted to their worship services. The Christians determined that it was not appropriate for outsiders to be admitted to the power-filled center of their worship. What? Like, just so they weren't allowed to come into this because it was a power-filled worship gathering for prayer and Eucharist, communion. As the second century progressed, there were enough experiences of persecution to persuade the Christians that in Athens, if lying informers were allowed into their services, the result might be their, on, uh, their slaughter. So they didn't allow outsiders in for the worship experience. Yet it was growing like crazy. And it says this, so the growth of the Christian communities, which was a result of their visibly interesting behavior, rooted in the parts of their life that were invisible and inaccessible to outsiders. In other words, their life outside of the gathering were very interesting. What was happening here, they weren't allowed to see. The outsiders weren't even allowed to come in. He says, um, Pagans could observe Christians who were economically compassionate and say, look. Pagans could not, however, observe a Christian worship service and say, look. And then he goes on to say, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. And the outsiders found, that Christian, uh, found the Christians attractive because of their Christian practice habits, which were formed in their discipleship formation and worship. That's pretty powerful. Can we pray? Lord, I pray in your name that we would learn to practice the things in life that matter most. I pray, Lord, that you forgive us for counting number of people gathered and tithes and offerings when we should be counting lives transformed, cities renewed. Lord, I pray that you would do something to us as we embrace um, a new way of following you. I pray that you'd help us learn this together in your name. Amen. So culture is forming us. Society is forming us. Um, and so we have to learn to take on counter-formational practices to counter the formation that we're already under in culture. And so um, we're going to talk about one today. 
When the history books are written, they'll point to 2007 as a turning point in history, much like 1440 was. 1440 was the year Gutenberg invented the printing press and launched the Protestant Reformation, which transformed Europe and the world. 2007 was the year that the iPhone was introduced by Steve Jobs, along with a bunch of other things. Facebook was launched, and anyone with an email address could have a Facebook account. That went global. Twitter was launched. And their platform went global. And there were a list of technological breakthroughs all happening around 2007. The App Store was invented. The cloud. The cloud. It's not on the cloud. It's in the cloud. Anyone? This is us? Okay. okay. Did anyone watch the Super Bowl Sunday, This Is Us? It's focus. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. Getting back to this. I could just preach, though, on the transforming power. (laughs) Jesus is all over that show. Um, Intel Silicon Chips. 2007 was the the launch of the digital age. And we, for those of us that are older than 25, um, know that there was a time when you didn't have infinity in your pocket. And so all you 25 and younger, 24 and younger, you didn't realize that actually you couldn't like take videos, text message, you know, spend the entire day connecting with everyone by not leaving your, your house. Um, there was a time when you, you, you weren't able to do those things. And, and, and so what's happened to us is there's been this digital revolution that has impacted how we interact in the world. And there are so many amazing things to technology. I mean, the fact, just iPhone alone, the fact that we have Lyft or Uber and we can get around whenever we need to, we don't have to worry about being left behind by our family and friends. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to care about where we're going because we have Google Maps or Maps, and we have FaceTime. I could be anywhere in the world and, and talk to my family. Ezra, my son, do, doesn't understand how I can talk to somebody and not see them. Like, he, he literally is like, how can he, he's, I'm talking to grandma. Oh, let me see. I'm like, no, 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 I'm on the phone. Wait, why can't you see her? Because he lives in a world where there's FaceTime. And there's all these amazing things. But one of the things, there's lots of cons. And I want to talk about some of those things that, that are specific to what the, the practice we're going to talk about. See, one of the dangerous things that's happening is we're losing, um, every year our attention span is dropping. And right now, we're like below um, I think, what, what's the animal? It's like, um, like our attention span is less than pigs or something like that at this point as humans. Like we're just going lower and lower. It's like less than eight seconds. It's like eight seconds now. It used to be 11 a few years ago. Now it's eight seconds. And um, uh, the economists call it, uh, they, they call the economy the attention economy. The attention economy. Literally thousands of apps and devices are trying to distract you 24-7. And so um, the new normal, as Linda Stone, a Microsoft researcher, calls it, is continuous partial attention. This is why you're fighting with your spouse all the time. Continuous, uh uh-huh, what'd you say? Partial, okay, one second, attention. And, And that alone is enough to say, hey, the reason your kids are getting frustrated, one of them could be this crazy distraction you have constantly. And it's, it's never full attention. It's a continuous partial attention. And this is why people like Tristan Harris, a former product philosopher for Google and Silicon Valley insider, has left the industry and started a nonprofit with the sole purpose of arguing for a Hippocratic oath for software developers. 
Because right now, everything is designed or intentionally engineered by 20-somethings in San Francisco for addiction and distraction. The most brilliant minds coming out of Ivy League schools uh, are creating apps and advertisement and things on your device to keep you hooked to it. It's It's not a neutral device. It is scientifically engineered to keep you addicted and distracted. Are you with me? I, I thought this article was fascinating. I read this last year, and I, I've used it, but I found the quote. The CEO of Netflix was asked about the competition he has with HBO streaming and Amazon Prime streaming, and, and he says this line. He's like, there's a vast, he basically says, there's so much content out there. We're not competing with HBO or Amazon Prime. He says this, you get a show or a movie you're really dying to watch, and you end up staying up late at night. So we're actually competing with sleep. The CEO added, and we're winning. Netflix doesn't see HBO or Amazon as its competitor. It sees sleep as its competition. Andrew Sullivan did this provocative essay in New York Magazine called I Used to Be a Human Being. And the essay opens up with him checking into a meditation center, dropping his phone into a basket where it's locked away for uh, essentially a digital detox. And there's all sorts of amazing things in this long article. But this, the end of a closing paragraph, he says this, there are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. New York Magazine, journalist writing about the problem of media, technology, and distraction. So, Jesus says, what will profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? When I say soul, when we talk about soul, we're not talking about our emotional health, like, oh, I'm distracted, I'm busy, I have a mild grade of anxiety I live with. We're talking about the spiritual condition of our existence, our soul, our spiritual life. It's when we begin to feel distant from God. And there's a great uh, writer and theologian, uh, Catholic writer and theologian, Ronald Rollheiser, and he puts it this, this way. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Did I make the case? Can we all just take a, a deep breath and say, I get it? We are. This is true of all of us. We're all guilty of recognizing that the number one thing we struggle with is busyness. That we're, and, 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 and um, you know, Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life. So we're busy, we're distracted, we're living in this world where we're digitally connected. So here's the question. Is, it, is there a practice from the life of Jesus that could set us up to thrive in the chaos of our over-busy, digitally distracted, noisy, urban life? Yes, there is a practice. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. I'm just going to teach this morning on a very, what seems like a very necessary practice for us. It will be so basic and so elementary, dear Watson, that 
we will, you will think this is a potentially a waste of time, but this is the most important practice for spiritual life. And I, won't, I will overemphasize that at the end. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Let's look through a few of these passages. We're going to go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 3, verse 16. At that moment, so as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my boy, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. <coughs> Keep going. So he's baptized. He's, his identity is, is stated over him. And then the, look at, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I caught somebody's cold this week. Forgive me. From last Sunday. Thank you so much. That's why I carry, I carry like a pocket of thieves and hand sanitizer. Um, Matthew, sorry. <laughs> I have a paranoia. Matthew 6, so check, Matthew 3, check this out. <coughs> Jesus is baptized. And the very first thing he does as he goes into the wilderness. He's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And the word for wilderness in the Greek is eremos. And it's, it has a variety of meanings. And it can be translated the wilderness or desert. But it's also translated the desert place or the deserted place, the desolate place, the solitary place, the quiet place, or the lonely place. And there are stories in all four of the Gospels of Jesus' relationship to Eremos, the lonely place. For years, in this particular story, I've always read like this story as Jesus is tempted in his weakness. That he, the tempter comes to Jesus in a time of weakness. He's fasting. He's isolated. He's alone in the desert. And he's hungry. And then, then the enemy comes to him to tempt to prove his, his identity and his calling and his vocation. It's the low point. But then as I've been studying this season, uh, this practice, I realized actually Eremos isn't the place of weakness. It's a place of strength for Jesus. The Spirit led Jesus to the Eremos for 40 days. He's in silence and solitude. Jesus is at the height of his spiritual power with God. It's here that Jesus is grounded centered, unshakable. It's here that he roots himself in his identity. I am his boy. And this is why I'm here. This is my vocation and my ministry. And of course, the enemy would think he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's alone. This is the moment I'm gonna get him. But what he doesn't know is Jesus is feasting while he, fa while he fasts on the Lord. And it is that place of solitude and silence that Jesus will go to over and over again, as we'll see, as the place to ground, center, and reunite himself with God and his true identity. Go to Mark chapter 1. How are we doing, 915? You guys see the Han Solo preview? That was the only thing I saw in the Super Bowl. I was like, what? I was like in the other room. I'm like, doo -doo -doo -doo. What, what, what? Like, 
What? They're coming out. It's coming out May. Come on. Anyways, all right. You get a little glimpse of my uh, nerd love for Star Wars. And I'm just so excited because there's going to be like 50 million new Star Wars films. And um, I just know that my son's going to grow up eventually and we'll be adults who at the same time love... um, well, I loved as a child. So, uh, Mark chapter 1, Jesus has like, he's, so this is Mark's record. Jesus comes back from fasting for 40 days, being alone in solitude. And then he has a, his first day as the Messiah. It's like his first public ministry day. And he, preach, he, he, he preaches the good news. He calls his disciples. He drives out impure spirits. He heals. And in verse, uh, go to verse 35. Right before verse 35, the story ends where he spends the entire day doing all this stuff. And, and then um, it says, the, verse 33, the whole town gathered at the door. So the, the town is just pressing in on Jesus. People are being healed. He heals everyone. He's casting out demons. He's popular. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a Eremos, solitary place, where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Of course they were. He was healing everyone. He was doing all this amazing stuff. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, driving out the demons. So Jesus, after being away for 40 days in solitude and silence, comes back, has one day, and immediately goes back to solitude and silence. The success of day one leads him to recognize, this is why I'm here. We gotta go other places. Let's leave. Like everyone else would be like, great, let's get the Facebook Live set up. We're gonna get some chairs. We'll get, a, we'll get the overflow room going because we already outdid Peter's mother-in-law house. Like she got healed. Everyone's gonna get healed. This is great. We can, you, we can do a campus on the other site. We'll get live video feed because this is how we do it. Jesus is like, nope, I'm here to go after the lost and preach in other towns. So he rejects the success in some ways. But he, he does this out of a place of solitude and silence. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, um, verse 32, verse 30. Um, so Jesus just commissioned, in the story, Jesus just commissioned um, the disciples. Hey, I just want you guys to know, with parents bouncing the back, don't worry about your kids making noise. We're so glad they're here. So you, don't, you can let your anxiety be down. You don't have to make them quiet. We can all handle some, some, you guys made it here. I'm so proud of you guys bouncing your kids in the back. I love the, this thing going on. I, I live with one arm. So thank you for being here. Permission for the little ones to be here. Cause I, and if you don't like that in our church, you can go to the mom's room and see what it's like sitting in there for a couple hours, all right? Mom and dad's room, not just the mom's room. Because I go in there too, and dads are doing just as hard of work. Not, not as hard as work. Moms are doing way harder. <laughs> well, there's nothing close to the moms. Let me, let me backtrack that. <laughs> oh, man. I get like three hours of what my wife gets. It's so funny. She's like, Darren, work is a vacation. Go off. Read your little Bible. Have your little meetings. Write your little sermons. Do you get to order coffee at a coffee shop without two kids screaming at the same time? That's a vacation. I'm like, yeah, baby, I'm sorry. I won't say again. I will do the dishes. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because we're talking about this story. Okay. This is such a good story because this happened to me. So, so Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. It's so good. And to do the things that he was doing. And they come back, verse 30. And the apostles gathered around him after a day of doing ministry and reported to him all they had done. Hey, we were preaching. We preached. People got healed. People got sick. And then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't have a chance to eat food. Have you ever been so busy that you missed a meal? Like, have you ever been so busy in life either doing good things or trying to get the stuff done that you need to get done that you, oh my gosh, I forgot to eat. And Jesus' response to them is come, let's watch Netflix and have a second glass of wine. <laughs> it's not what he says. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet, quiet place and get some rest. So come with me and get some rest. So they went away by themselves on a boat to a solitary place, Eremos, but many who saw this saw them leaving, um, went on foot to the other town. And when Jesus landed, they saw a large crowd. And they're just exhausted. They're hungry. But Jesus has compassion on them because he was, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them all these things. And then it's late and their stomachs are growling and the disciples say, oh, come on, send them home. They gotta, get, they gotta eat food. We gotta eat food. And he's like, you feed them. So have you ever been in a place where you're exhausted, and you just need to rest, and life happens. Like this week, I'm preaching on solitude and silence. I knew this weeks ago, and so I'd set up Thursday as a day to practice three hours of solitude and silence. That is just insane. I never get three hours. I set it up. I organized it, put it on my calendar. I kept reminding Alex, this is what I'm going to do Thursday during my work hours, three hours. I'm literally going to go sit on the beach with a chair and my Bible and a journal, and that's it for three hours. And I said, call me if you have an emergency. It's on do not disturb. I'm not going to check my phone. One hour in, I just journaled this. I kid you not. Lord, this is so hard. Being alone for this long is so hard. And my people-pleasing ways and my need to be around people makes this really hard. But Lord, I'm going to stick it out for the next two hours. Would you just protect this time so that I could be rooted in you? Put my pen down. I'm op open up my hands like this on the beach. My phone rings. Alex calls me. Hey, babe, I'm at Whole Foods. You're not going to believe this. My car won't start. Will you come jump me? Life happens. And guess what? I was mad. You left the lights on. And, and, and I, it, I wasn't that mad. I was like, oh, God, I made it. I was being gracious. It's fine. I was totally fine doing it. And I ran into somebody from our church. So I had to pretend I was doing really well. And, um, <laughs> But you know what's funny is Saturday, I had like this interaction with Alex. She went out with breakfast with the girls and I was watching all the kids and I was experiencing mom life for a moment and, and I was frustrated in this interaction and she's like, you need to go ask the self, what, what's, what story are you telling yourself right now? Go ask, go write that down. Go get like five minutes and because and, I don't like this interaction. And I realized that I was frustrated that Thursday was interrupted. And this is the story of my life. I'm so petty but I realize that I will set things up in my mind to be a certain way. And when they don't go a certain way, I will be frustrated and not even realize I'm frustrated about it for a long time. Actually, until I actually sit with myself alone in solitude and silence, even if it's for 10 minutes, and go, What's, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? And then the Lord speaks to me. You're being a little child. You need to, you need to ask for forgiveness. It, so what happens when, when, our solid, when, when things don't, don't go the way we want them to go? Well, we have to, sometimes we have to show up and pour out all of our energy for our family. 
because we don't, and we might not get the solid, we'll talk about that in a second. But this is amazing. So it's a busy day for Jesus, a busy day for his disciples. They, they, they want some rest. It gets interrupted because that's real life. Now look at what Jesus does next though. Verse 40, he, uh, verse 42, they, they feed 5,000. And then verse 45, this is so crazy. Jesus, immediately Jesus sends his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. And um, while he dismissed the crowd, so he's like, you guys get away. Um, he dismisses the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. Exhausted, you think Jesus needs to hang out. Just check out, eat some pizza, watch a movie, relax. That's not what he does. He needs some sleep. What he does is he, late at night, he, spent, he spends the night in prayer with the Father. That was the source for him. That was his source, this place of solitude and silence. This place was this, the source of him connecting. And then he ends up walking on water, which is kind of cool. Um, but what Jesus does is not say, I need to check out. Um, he, he, knows, he knows realistically that what he needs more than anything is to rest with the Father, to stay up with God, in a place of solitude and silence. I read this and I felt so convicted because Thursday was interrupted, but that night when the kids were down and Alex, um, in our elder meeting, we had a Thursday night elder meeting, I could have stayed up. I, and that's what God was speaking. He's like, you, you create this like ideal scenario, right? Where like cigarettes music is on, the candles are lit, nobody's up, there's not a bird outside chirping, like you, your tummy is well fed, like everything's good for you, you're ready to go. And, and, and what happens in my life, if I don't get that, I get frustrated. Anyone else want to admit that? Am I in a safe place? Can we? Yeah, there's a bunch of us. And, and the reality is we need to learn to be in the presence of God in sol solitude and silence, even when it doesn't meet our expectations. We'll talk about how we get there. Let's skip Luke. I'm going way too long. Uh, I didn't realize how excited I would be about these passages. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, nine times goes to the solitary place, to the lonely place, Eremos, nine different times. And he'll be busy with his family or life. And the first thing you'll see him do is respond to silence and solitude. Martin Luther said this at one point, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. My point is that Eremos is this. Eremos was a regular part of Jesus's life rhythm. He would constantly sneak away to the mountainside, to the park, to the beach, or to the closest place where he could be alone to pray. This practice is called silence and solitude. And it's an intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. I'm gonna speed through some of these definitions. So stay with me. I want you, the goal is to now practice silence and solitude this week as a house church, in your house churches, but as a, a, an apprentice of Jesus, you're going to learn now to regularly schedule silence and solitude. We will talk about what do you do when you have two kids who are not sleeping through the night? How do you even manage that? There, it, you gotta honor the life stage you're in. You gotta honor your personality. You gotta honor the season of life you're in. But we'll talk about starting to practice this spiritual discipline or practice of Jesus. So in order to have silence, um, which is pretty self-explanatory, there's actually, you have to eliminate the external and internal noise, right? So you have to silence, um, you have to eliminate the music 
Uh, silence is not listening to music. Silence, there's no music. There's no TV on in the background. There's no roommate watching Netflix. You have to go somewhere in nature. You have to be alone. You have to be in, in quiet. There's external noise, and then there's the internal noise, the, the lists, the to-dos, the what-ifs, the squirrel moments of your life. <coughs> and some of you have them way more than normal. And um, the other things you have to silence are the voices. You crazy people that have voices in your head. But you want to silence the voices to be alone with God and learn how to listen to him. Richard Foster says in the celebration of discipline that um, silence is not the same thing as loneliness or isolation. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Wayne Cadero says this, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. So in silence and solitude, you decompress from the noise, the the traffic, the chaos. You create an intentional time in the quiet to be alone with yourself and God. You slow down enough to feel what you feel. In fact, I just, real quick story. When I was going through therapy a couple years ago, dealing with some issues, because I have a lot of issues, as you know, um, as you've heard, if you've listened to our podcast at all. Um, one of my therapists was saying, Darren, um, the practice for you, because you're an extrovert, because you're just going so fast, is to actually to slow down and listen to your body. What does your body physically feel? What is it trying to tell you? That slowing down and listening to my body was like the most revolutionary practice I've ever experienced in my life, pretty much. I was like, oh my gosh, it's telling me that I'm disappointed, that I'm sad. Like I I realized it, it was, it took me slowing down, not listening to music, not checking out, not going, like making phone calls on the drive because that was the only time I could fit phone calls into my busy schedule. It was slowing down and I recognized that actually in that slowing down, in that solitude and silence, listening to your own self, to your own body is actually powerful in itself. But it's also a place where we learn to listen to God and hear his voice through the cacophony of all the other voices in our lives. But we can also begin to face the good, the bad, the ugly that's in our heart. Silence and solitude will give you, um, let you recognize either you have a, a desire for God or you, you lack desire for God. It's okay that you don't want to be with God in silence and solitude and say to God, I don't want to be with you right now. You have to learn to be the kind of apprentice to Jesus that learns to say what he he or she really feels in those moments of of loneliness. I'm angry at my wife. I hate this co-worker God. Have you read any of the Psalms? It talks about bashing the heads of our enemies' babies on rocks. That's dark. That's like TVMA. It's the inspired word of the Lord. Read it literally, brothers and sisters. Just kidding. Don't read it. It's not. Never mind. That's, I shouldn't joke about that. Um, there are things that can be re- read literally, but we've got to take context into account. Have you ever been so upset you just wanted to hurt someone? That's, that's inspired to be prayer and worship to God. Bringing your real stuff to God. That, you learn that in silence and solitude. You learn that when you create space, actually feel what you really feel with honesty. When you're not checking out to the next, uh, checking out, what is this? This is flipping the channel, I guess. For, for most of us, it's like this. But when you're not, when you're not checking out and learning 
uh, or, or distracting. Because what happens when you don't get enough silence and solitude is this. We feel distant from God. We end up living off of someone else's spirituality via podcasts. That's why I, I love and hate podcasts. Because what we do is we live, we live our spirituality through, the, through someone else's relationship to God. Like one of the worst things that this setting, what this does, this public setting does, is for the good or bad, it, it creates an environment where people can experience the relationship that an individual might have with God and think that that's our experience. Like we can, like we, we, we can feed ourselves off of someone else's time with God rather than actually going to the source, reading the Bible, getting on our knees in worship. Like faith is up here on her knees in worship. You may not want to be on your knees in worship, but somehow in her spiritual journey, at this moment, she's led to this position that gives her a greater sense of response to God as she leads us in her spiritual time. And we can think, oh, look at how great our spiritual worship leader is their spirituality and that's the danger how do you counter that silence and solitude developing a rhythm of life with God in your own practice are you guys doing good when we don't get this we lose sight of our identity who we are in God and our calling so we begin to lose perspective on what really matters in life and our, our priorities get all turned upside down. We get stuck in the tyranny of the urgent. We forget what's important and we get busier and busier and we forget what matters. And so what happens if we continue in this process of not engaging with God in silence and solitude is we get sucked into escapism and we no longer engage in certain things. So we run out of energy that, and we run out of energy um, to actually rest in life-giving ways. So if you go long enough, you will just find yourself saying, I need some time off, I need to rest, and we will just stay up later watching Netflix rather than going to sleep so we can wake up and be with the Lord in the morning. Or just shut that off and read a book at night, talk to our spouse about the day and the weeks we've had. We just, we just end up on our phones, right? Or if, for those of us that aren't married, we do this with our roommates. We just overfill our, cal- our calendar with meetings with other people because we're not dealing with the loneliness that we have inside or the grief. Silence and solitude is, is the practice that helps you understand who you really are and what God wants to do with you. And so um, one of the things I've realized too is, and I've joked about it, but in silence and solitude, um, if we don't practice it, we become emotionally unhealthy and start living reactionary. And the way you, I catch this is the smallest thing, like a, a criticism at work or an offset comment or a comment from a spouse will set you off. It will trigger you. And you will, be, you will be tempted to bark at your kids or your spouse or your friends and you'll just respond um, agitative, with agitation and defense. And so all of this are, all these things are symptoms of people that aren't rooting themselves with God. And practicing silence and solitude. So we need to capture or recapture silence and solitude. Um, Henry Nouwen says this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and to listen to him. Um, I love what he says. So at one point, Henry Nouwen, who is, has deeply formed my spiritual life, um, was a Catholic uh, who was a br- brilliant writer, ended his, li- ended his kind of ministry life uh, working with mentally, adult mentally disabled in a home called Large. And he's amazing. But he asked Mother Teresa for spiritual direction at one point. 
This is like, this is Henry Nouwen, Yale, like just genius, goes to Mother Teresa, would you give me like spiritual direction? And her response was this. It's so amazing. Spend one hour each day in adoration of your Lord and never do anything you know is wrong. Follow this and you'll be fine. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, and, and so to end, I guess, brothers and sisters, I agree. I, I mean it in all seriousness. If all you learned to do was spend one hour every day. Now, moms and dads with little ones, this is going to be impossible. And I want to give you permission not to not have solitude and silence, but permission to honor the season of life you're in. Because Bill Doctrum gave my wife and I this permission that set us free from the burden of needing to have a spirituality that looked a certain way than we were able to do in seasons and stage of life. He says moms and dads with um, preschool age kids have the hardest time for developing a spiritual life. This is what Bill said to me. And he, he talked about this, and I'll just give you our spiritual direction. Actually, this is from Alex's meeting with Bill. He said, there are some of us that have streams right now where we get with God and we'll take whatever we get, streams. They just come down and we'll take whatever we get. But what we need to do as Christians is develop reservoir. I was like, oh, that's good. What's that mean? He's like, well, when the, <laughs> we're like, yeah, reservoir, that's a good word. Let's write a song about reservoir. Because um, that's how you write songs. <laughs> All right, so um, reservoir is that when, when, when the, the streams dry up, there's a wealth, a depth of life with God that is just overflow. You can just get from the overflow. So um, Mother Teresa is right. The practice is spending an hour a day in adoration. That I love you, God. Examining the gospels and blessing Jesus in our life. And that's the discipline. Um, and that will be enough. So uh, let me just end with, uh, oh man, I had so much more. How are we doing on time? Are you guys good? Are we good? Where's the staff? It's 45. Can we go just a few more minutes? 915, are you okay with this? Do you want to go? You, does the section want to leave? Okay. I won't, I won't take it personally. I will, but I'll go to solitude and silence and forgive you next week. So this is the thing. This is why it's so crazy because the whole world is talking about mindfulness right now. You can't go to the app store, to iTunes. You can't go to Amazon bookstore or walk into a literal bookstore without seeing like a whole section on mindfulness. And, and people give credit to the Zen and Buddhist tradition, but it really is a Christian and practice, a Jewish practice. And this is what Jesus is getting after. Solitude and silence, a place of meditation, a place of reflection, a place of prayer. Um, it is our cultural moment as Christians to say, this is what we should be known for. Centered life, unshakable presence, non-distracted living beings non-anxious presence to the world. This is what everyone's looking for. Then some guy comes out with an app and think, oh my gosh, this is revolutionary. I can practice mindfulness driving in the car. Yes, you don't need an app. You just shut off NPR for 20 minutes and think your own thoughts to God. You're welcome. Billion dollar app waiting to happen. But I love what Andrew Sullivan says in his article. He says this, modernity slowly weakens spirituality. By design and accident, in favor of commerce, it downplayed silence mere in favor of noise and constant action. 
The reason we live in a culture of increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. So silence and solitude, in Andrew Sullivan's words, is how we reach the outside world. Silence and solitude as a regular practice in your life develops the kind of person that is attractive to outsiders. It's not, hey, come see this cool church that meets at Franklin Middle School and they do cool things and sometimes they get weird and close their eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to come. It's because your life is the only life that is present in this distracted age. Your life is the only life that's unshakable. People will come to you because you seem like a person that can handle the stress and chaos of someone else's life. That's what Jesus was after with calling disciples to be with him, become like him, and do what he did. Silence and solitude is the way we do this. So I want you to practice silence and solitude. Practice it, church. Here are some practicals. Number one, know your personality, your season of life, and stage of life. This practice, more than anything, more than any other practice, will uh, be shaped by whether you're introvert or extrovert. Introverts, you need way more solitude and silence than extroverts. Extroverts, it's not an excuse to not practice silence and solitude. You need silence and solitude as well. Extroverts, you need silence and solitude because you love community. Introverts, you need community because you love silence and solitude. That's how it works. And so I want you to think about those seasons of life you're in as well, stages of life. Your season of life, um, if you're single and you live alone, you get to practice this. Don't just allow your, your aloneness to negate the fact that you need to practice silence and solitude. Just because you're alone and live alone doesn't mean you're practicing this as a discipline. And honor this season of life you're in and the stage. Sometimes you need more of it than other times. Um, and that's just important. Number two, it's a practice, not a performance. This is not about some legalistic thing. This is about a heart thing. What am I talking about? We're talking about quiet time. You ever heard of that? Like back in the day, they would talk about quiet time. We need to, we need to like bring back the quiet time. Like bring back the, man, I was in my quiet time today and God was speaking. That's what we're talking about here. You being alone with God, reading the Bible, learning to meditate, learning to pray. It's not about a legalistic thing like God's gonna love you more when you get quiet time in than when you don't. That's not the case. It's about developing practices that will shape you into Christ-likeness because you're doing the things that he did. You with me? Third, think short-term and long-term. Long-term, it wouldn't be amazing to have an entire day of solitude and silence. Some of you are like, yes, just a tired day. Others of you are like, that's the worst idea ever. But we should practice starting where you're at. Like tomorrow morning, schedule. You gotta wake up at 6 a.m., wake up at 5.45, and just get 10 minutes to open up the scriptures and read the Bible and begin to think about the things that are going on. You need to have short-term goals like, hey, maybe it's just I'm gonna drive tomorrow to work without noise on. I'm not gonna listen to music. I'm not gonna be distracted by NPR. Gonna move forward. Just think short-term and long-term. Long-term is, hey, develop Sabbath. Practice Sabbath every week where you shut off all technology and practice these things. When you do it, I encourage you, 
to quiet your mind, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, read scripture, journal, and pray. Like just do all those things in your silence and solitude. I think they're up there. Quiet your mind, invite the Holy Spirit, read scripture, journal, and pray. Those are just simple things. You can do that in 10 minutes. But let me just say one more thing that I realize is part of my, my regular practice. When I wake up in the morning, I have a ritual. I push the on button for the coffee. That's the first thing I do. Push the on button. I already put my Bible and my journal on my chair in the living room. That's where I have my quiet time. And the, after I set that on go, I turn on the fireplace or I light a candle during the summer or when it's hot. I love turning on the fire. Some of you don't have that. Light a candle as a symbol, as a moment. Say, this is my time with God. The fire represents his presence. And then I, I start the day, and I've told you this last week, come Holy Spirit, would you feel me? I open up the scriptures, I read our daily reading that we're doing as a church, and then I journal and pray and allow God to lead me, and then it turns into whatever it is. But there's a ritual, it's coffee, and, and then I break when coffee's done, I break. <laughs> and grab coffee, and then, then the Spirit comes. And so, <laughs> hey, so I know, um, we all have different perspectives on things in life, but I, want, I really want to encourage you to practice silence and solitude. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.